Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, show us what you would want us to see from this, this new book that we're starting tonight. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Haggai is one book ahead of Zechariah. So if you found Zechariah these last couple <laughs> months, you should be able to find Haggai with no problem. Uh, Haggai is a book that tells us exactly when it's written. Uh, when we look at history, it was written in 520 BC. How do we know that? Because he's writing in the second year of Darius. We know when Darius started reigning was 522 BC. And if he's in the second year of Darius, he's, in, he's starting his book at 520 BC. Uh, very rarely do we know exactly when a book is, was written, and this is one of those ones. Uh, the author is Haggai. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, Haggai means festive or my feast. Uh, so he has an interesting uh, position on this. He's the first prophet that is mentioned after the captivity. So he is a contemporary with Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, those people after the, after the captivity. And he is the prophet that's going to speak to them. Uh, the theme of this book is, the first part of it is that he rebukes the people for not having built, rebuilt the temple. The second part of the book, and it's only two chapters long, is that he rejoices that they were obedient in <laughs> starting to build the temple after he rebuked them. And that is basically the the position on this book. Uh, people being disobedient, being chastised, being obedient, and being praised for their obedience. Um, the, one of the key verses in it is probably uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And it says, he tells the leaders to be strong and accomplish the work. So this is, this is his theme of the book. Be obedient, be strong, be obedient. Uh, and so we look at these things. Quick outline of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, tells us who and when the book was, who wrote the book and when it was written. Uh, 3 through 11 is his rebuke to the people. And 2 through 15 is that he encourages them to be obedient. In chapter 2, 1 through 9, it's, uh, he says, tell, reminds the people to look at the new temple and kind of criticizes it because he says it's not as good as the old and calls on the older people to say, don't you remember this? And there's almost tears, as other prophets have talked about, when they see the new temple and they compare it to the old. Now, unfortunately, most of them were not around during the old because they've been in captivity for 70 years. So even the ones who remember it just vaguely remember it because they were young whippersnappers when they were taken off into captivity. And so he's telling them to look at that, uh, talks about the unworthiness, and then he talks about the doom that's going, going to happen. Uh, it's not a real uplifting book, uh, but it is one that shows us a lot about the consequences of sin and being obedient to God, the importance of it. So we're going to start in this Haggai chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord to Haggai the prophet, unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say this is, time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your chiseled houses, and this house lie in waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sworn so much, and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You, were, you clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages earns wages to put in a bag with holes. All right. So here we have the message to the people. And so we were told the second year of Darius, which we already talked about. So this places us at exactly 520 BC. And he even tells us that it is in the sixth month and the first day of the month of the king. So he's very specific. He gives us a strong 
time marker and saying this is exactly when we're talking about. And, um, and this is going to become important because when they get obedient, we're going to find out how many days it took them to become obedient. And amazingly, it's not very long um, for, for the people. And it says, he makes his prophecy to Jerubbabel. Now, Jerubbabel is the grandson of King Jehoiachin of Judah. And he was the last king of Judah. And so this is his grandson, so he is of royal descent. All right? Um, and so we see this process. He returned to Israel under Cyprus, uh, King Cyprus of the Medo-Persian Empire in 567 B.C. So these people have been there for, uh, for 17 years at this point, And their instructions from Cyprus was to go build the temple. Cyrus, excuse me. I even, I even have it written right. Cyrus. <laughs> and Cyrus was the one who sent him back. And, we, and I kind of believe that Daniel was the one that met with him and said, see, your book is in our prophecies. Because his name was given in prophecy before the children of Israel were sent into captivity that Cyrus would send them back and help build the temple. And... Uh, and I'm sure Daniel, because Daniel was an advisor to him, probably showed him the prophecies and said, see, you're supposed to send my people, <laughs> you know, you're supposed to send my people, the, the people back to build this. build this." And Cy Cyrus paid for mo much of the rebuilding of the temple, and yet 17 years later, the people have not started the work or not completed the work or you know, not, not done anything according to what, what Haggai is going to say. Um, so Zerubbabel is this person who is the leader. He's been given the governor title, even though he technically would be king, but there is no country of Israel at this moment. The king Cyprus, Cy well, I don't want to keep saying Cyprus, King Cyrus <laughs> and Darius are letting them go back home to build. And if you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, there's all these battles and everybody's saying, you know, the enemy saying these guys are going to rebel against you if they get their city put back together and all this stuff. And so they've been concentrating on their own homes. They concentrated on building the walls of Jerusalem, but they have not concentrated on building the temple of God where they can worship. And so this is a big deal. So he's, he's a prophet to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. And Joshua is the high priest of that day, and he is the um, grandson of Hilkiah, the high priest at Jehoiachin's reign. So we are in basically two full generations from the captivity, which is they were in captivity for 70 years, so we're two generations away. The, the older generation was taken, their fathers lived in captivity, and then they come back as the leaders of the people in the new vassal state. <laughs> uh, technically, they're not their own country yet. They're, they're a, they're a sub-territory, but they've been given governorship and rule over it. And you would think that at least Joshua would say, well, we need a temple so I can do my job. But he doesn't even seem to push for this. Uh, and this is, this is kind of an amazing thing. For 17 years, they're supposed to be building a temple to God, and they haven't even started. They have not even started that temple. It started to be obedient. And so they're doing the same thing that they have always done for, for uh, God's, you know, in God's people, is they do things their own way. Do things their own way and forget what God tells them to do. Now, before we're too hard on them, we oftentimes do the same thing. We love to do things our own way and not do things the way God tells us to. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people look at the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament and say, well, how could they be so dumb? How could they be so disobedient? Well, you know, I kind of look at my own life and how many times have I been just as disobedient and 
and, and everything. Maybe I haven't seen quite as many miracles, but you know what? I got saved, and God changed my life, and he's made, he's made all kinds of changes in my life, and I can still be just as disobedient as they were. So we need to understand, and a lot of people go, well, if I was in their shoes, and I'll finish it for them, you'd be doing just what they did. <laughs> you would still you know, say, I don't trust. God fed the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness with manna and water and quail. And what happened? After 40 years of every morning having God perform a miracle outside, they finally got to the place where they forgot that it was God who gave it to them. And as I said, when a miracle is done all the time, it becomes normal. It's no longer a miracle that, I find, that I'm finding food laying out on the ground outside my tent. It's no longer a miracle that there's a river of water flowing from that rock over there. You know, uh, we're used to that big spigot over there that keeps following us everywhere we go and pouring water out all, all the time. We're used to the quail coming and flow, you know, flooding the camp so that we can kill them every night. And they've kept forgetting that this was miraculous. And this is the problem sometimes that I even say so often. When we're being blessed by God, we sometimes can get to the place where we forget that we're being blessed. We're going, well, this is normal. It's normal to have all these blessings. And we've got to be careful that we don't get that way. Otherwise, we become just like these people in the Old Testament. These people that Haggai are talking to, they've been there 17 years and they forgot that their job was to build the temple. They have built a wall around the city. They have reestablished their houses. They have done all of these things and have forgot about God's house. And this is what Haggai is telling them. Why will you forget the God who sent you back home? and gave you, all, gave you peace amongst your enemies, and now you forgot about him. Verse 2 says, uh, The people say, The time has not come, the time for the Lord's house, for the, for, that the Lord's house should be built. We're so, busy, we're so busy taking care of ourselves that we can't take care of God, is basically the translation to that. Uh, we are busy, busy, busy. You know, busy getting our farms planted, and our trees planted, and our harvest done and all these things and our houses making looking good we don't have time for God and this is something that even to this day we have problems with there are so many people that make excuses for not serving God and I hear you'll hear them all my life I've heard them too busy starting my family too busy building my business too busy you know too busy doing something don't have time to go to God's house and serve God don't have time to go out and witness. Don't have time to do whatever it is because life is too busy. This is the excuse these people were using. Life is too busy. Wait, it's not time to build God's house. We're still, we're still getting ourselves established. My, my, my farm does not have all the rocks out of the ground when I, when I plow. I, my trees are just starting to, to come to the age of giving us good, good harvest. You know, my, my sheep are so busy, you know, and I'm having to build the pens and I'm having to build the walls and, and just excuse after excuse to say it's not time to pay attention to God. And this is something for all Christians to grab hold of. And in verse 4, it's, uh, four it says, Is it time for you, O you that dwell in chiseled houses or paneled houses? So these people hadn't just built rock houses or walled houses. They had put paneling up. You know, they, had, they were decorating the inside of them. They were making them beautiful. And this house lies in waste. It says, you have got your buildings. You haven't just built your habitat. You have decorated it. You have paneled it. You have fully set it up and made it beautiful. And God's house is a, is a ruin of rock. Now, this is a message that really wins, wins, uh, wins people and influences people. Uh, you know, your guys are totally doing wrong. You're doing everything to make yourselves look good, and you're not even paying attention to God. I feel sorry for some of the prophets sometimes. They had to say some hard things. Uh, and so do pastors, but the prophets seem to have to do this every place we read. And he says, you have been spending all the time in your houses, making your houses. And verse 5 says, Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, 
Consider your ways. Think about your ways. You know, he's going to go, you're not following God. Think about what is happening now. He's going to list a few of those ways. Verse 6 goes, he starts with, you have sown much and you bring in little. He goes, basically he's saying, as Malachi will later say, you know, test God and see. You know, he goes, you, you sow a lot of seed and you're barely harvesting enough to get by. You've sown much and received little. He goes on to say, you eat, but you never have enough. Now, whether he's saying literally that you're never satisfied or you never have enough, it doesn't really, it's not really clear. I believe he's saying literally that they're just never satisfied with everything they get. Always. Right. Yeah. And this could be true of all of these verses. You're, you're sowing much, but you're not getting back everything you think. You're, you're, you're eating and drinking and, not, and never feeling like you're happy and satisfied. I think that's what he's saying here. You're never satisfied. You never get enough. And it could literally be that they weren't getting enough. But I think he's talking about their emotional state of being because he says, consider your ways. Paul said he had learned to be content with much and with little. You know, and this is when we're serving God, we can learn that even when we have little, we can be content if our contentment comes from God. And we know that because God's always promised he's going to meet our needs. And sometimes we un- misunderstand our needs. <laughs> but he says here, you're eating and you're drinking and you're not satisfied. You never get enough. He says, you wear clothes, but you never are warm. Now, this is the one that is pretty, pretty clear that they did not have enough clothes for whatever was going on. Uh, they were never warm enough. Again, this could be just an attitude area. You know, if you just don't think you're where you're supposed to be, you're never satisfied with what you've got, and you'll have all kinds of complaints with what you do have. And I love this last one. He says, you earn wages, and you put your wages in bags with holes. And he says, you're earning your money and it seems to disappear. You keep, it doesn't go very far. And this is very much what we teach about and Malachi teaches. You know, he goes, give to the Lord and see that if he's not going to return to you. And this is one of the verses I have used in my theology that I believe that when you don't give to God, God takes it anyway. I believe God takes his tithe. Whether you give it to him or not, he takes it. Now, your tithe may not be going to the church when God takes it, but he's going to take that money and, and use it the way he wants to use it, and that means it goes to the electric bill, the grocery company, the, the, the utilities, the car engine repairs, the flat tires, the, you know, the, the breakdowns, the, the, you're getting sick and spending money at the doctor. God says, okay, you didn't give it to me willingly. I will take it. And I've always thought it was amazing when I give my money to God, how much stuff I get. I go to the store and buy a lot more stuff than I should be able to buy with the amount of money that I spend at the store. My tires last longer. The cars last longer. The utilities aren't as high. Everything is a blessing because there's not holes in the bag (laughs) that God is pulling his money away. And this is the most important thing. If we do not honor God willingly especially as his children, but even those who are not his children in this case, God will take it from us and make it go seem like it doesn't go near as far. And this is his statement to the people. He goes, you are doing everything that you think you need to make you feel good and ignoring me, and you're, not, and you're still not getting satisfied. And if you follow in from what Solomon said, they would never be satisfied. They could keep making lots and lots of money and, and plant more and more fields and plant and have bigger and bigger feasts and they would still never be satisfied because without God, we can't be satisfied. And this is what he's telling them. You're, you're ignoring God and he says, consider, think about what's going on in your life. And he just lists a couple of things, but they probably could fill in the blanks on everything else that wasn't going on. How many animals were bothering them? How many, you know, how many... Uh, insects were eating their crops. How many 
how much droughts were going on, how hard was it to, to get their fields watered. Uh, all of these things that happen when God is not on your side. And this is what Haggai is re- showing them. He's going, you're having trouble. And this is exactly what God says. And here's why, because you're not honoring God. And this is something that's counterproductive to us, counterintuitive to us. We think, man, if I give God my money, how am I going to survive? If I give God honor and do what he wants me to do, how am I going to have time to do what I want to do? But you know the good news is, is when we turn our life over to God, God changes our desires. You know, we're told in the New Testament, seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Now, the key to that verse is we start by seeking God and his kingdom. If we start by seeking him, then we see his kingdom fulfilled and then we're fulfilled by seeing his kingdom fulfilled. And he changes our desires. Uh, he's not a, it's not a promise that if I treat him first and, and foremost and I give him lots of money that he's going to give me, you know, put your favorite car in, the, in there, you know, the, the big house on the hillside and your favorite, you know, favorite car and the, or four or five of them, one for everybody in the family and a couple spares beside, you know, money in the bank and food on the table. He's not promising him all of that. But by the same token, when we honor him, he does bless. But he changes our desires as to what a blessing is. And we're looking at, is his kingdom being built? And Haggai saying, you're not looking at the kingdom of God, you're looking at what's best or what you think is best for you, and it's not satisfying. It's not, it's not reaching out and, and satisfying you. And it's empty, it's vain. Nothing is there. And anybody who seeks after sinful lifestyles, or even a lifestyle that's not after God, knows how empty it is. Because many Christians do not necessarily seek for sinful activities. And one of the things that Satan tests us with as Christians is not with good and bad, but settling for good rather than settling, going for best. And oftentimes we get stuck on good. Well, God, I'm doing good. I'm doing the best that I can. And God said, I have so much more in store for you. And I've been there many times where I settle for good rather than best. And be able to reach out and say, God, I want your best. And that is sometimes the hardest thing for us because it's easy to make, you know, for as, as a strong Christian to make a decision between good and bad. You know, well, no, that's bad. I, I know that that's not bad. I am not going to do that. But you know, our hard decisions are when there's two good, good things in front of us. You know, that's exactly what it is. You know, they're both good, God. Which one should I choose? And God says, one of them's best if you'll just go my way. And it's not that we're doing wrong by choosing the good, but we're shortchanging ourselves. And Satan knows that if he can't get somebody to live in the bad side of things, he'll get, try to get them to settle for good. And oftentimes he'll get us to settle for lots of good and wear us out <laughs> when there was a best out there. And this is why I say for us Christians, we need to learn to be able to say no to certain things. When God's not saying to do it, we need to learn to be able to say, no, I can't do that. And you know, there's nothing wrong with saying no unless God's telling you to say yes, but there's nothing wrong in saying no once in a while. When I was a younger Christian, I almost burnt myself out by saying yes to everything. I was doing everything because I felt it was good. I had to do it. You know, you know, and this is the problem sometimes. Well, if I don't do it, who, who's going to do it? Well, if you're just patient enough, God will probably raise up the person that's supposed to do it. And I've actually seen it exactly work the opposite way. Somebody's filling a position that they weren't called to do, and they're doing it temporarily. And the person who was called to do it looks and says, well, I thought I was supposed to do it, but it's filled, so I guess I wasn't called to do it. Because somebody else is doing it you know, out there. And this is something that is critical for us to look at. Are we called to do something? If we are, do it. If you aren't called to do it, don't do it. 
I've told you know, over the years, I've told more pastors who would complain about something not being, you know, not having enough Sunday school teachers, not having enough nursery workers. I'm going, I can fix that real easy for you. He goes, what? I go, close it. He goes, can't do that. I'm going, if you have no workers that, are, that think that they're called to do it, then close it. It's obviously not needed. He goes, well, we'll have the kids in church, or we'll have the kids in, in, in uh, the nursery in the church. I go, and? <laughs> you know, they'll make a little noise. <laughs> if people are really bothered by it, somebody's going to step up and say, I'm called to take that ministry. You know, let me get these kids out of here. But, you know, it's something that I still, to, to in our church, I look at everything we're doing and saying, is this what we should be doing? You know, are we still supposed to do whatever it is that we're doing? I never want to do it just because. Just because we've been doing it for eight years does not mean we need to have to do it. Now, there's certain things I have absolutely no doubt about. Sunday morning service where the body comes together and we worship and we sing and we're taught. I have absolutely no qualms that that's supposed to be what we're doing. All the Bible studies we do, I absolutely believe that we're supposed to do. The rest of it, I strongly believe in Sunday school. But if we can't get teachers coming in to teach, then I don't, then we'll do whatever God wants us to do. We can do it. I'll do another Bible study on Sunday morning before church if that's what God wants. It doesn't matter to me. But we need to be able to say, is God providing the people to do what it is we need to do? Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to encourage people to step up and do things once in a while. Because sometimes people need to have their butts kicked to say, get busy <laughs> uh, to, to do things. But I also don't know who's called and who's not called. I can look at somebody and say, well, I think you make a great Sunday school teacher or you make a great, you know, whatever. But if they're not called, it doesn't matter what I see. They have to be ready to take that step forward. And it's very important for us to make those steps and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? And when you're doing what God wants you to do, it's, it's relatively simple. I'm not going to say there's not times when you're, you're tired or it's hard, but for the most part, when you're doing what God wants you to do, it's an easy thing. When I go out to the prison, uh, that's a hard thing to do. I'm not called to be an instructor out of the prison. But it does pay the bills. And I know that God put me there. And I will stay there until he says clearly not to be there. But you know what? I have no problems coming to the church. I know this is where I'm supposed to be. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And each time God has called me to do something, it has been more or less fun. Not that it hasn't been hard at times and and depressing at times maybe but it was known that this is what he called to do and this is important for us to step forward in what he is called to do because otherwise we start ignoring God and God is going to say all right why aren't you doing what you were told to do and I talked about giving but you know God wants our time as well and so we need to invest our time where he tells us to invest it in Otherwise, we'll still have these problems with satisfaction <laughs> that we're not happy doing whatever it is that he's telling us to do because we're not doing what it is that he wants us to do. And that gets hard. It is hard sometimes to do and stay faithful in what he calls us to do. And trials come. You know, it's, you know, some of my trials early on on here was how many times did I come in here and nobody showed up for the Bible study? And it hasn't happened a lot, but then for, for a while there, it was happening at least once or twice a month. And it used to be really fun. I'd have to preach to an empty room so that they could go out on the Internet because people were listening on the Internet. Of course. Well, that's exactly what it was all about. You know, it's the, the opportunity to give up. And God will see... God will see. Nobody cares. You're not, you're, not, you're not being faithful. And the problem is, if you're not prepared because nobody else showed up, then the day you're not prepared, somebody's going to show up and they're going to think it wasn't worth coming because you weren't prepared to give them a good message. And this happens in any ministry that we do. Anything we do is going to have that problem of are 
people caring enough or is it needed? And this is something that Haggai is challenging the people. Are you, are you really seriously considering that God does not need, the, that you're not supposed to worship? And this is ultimately what he's talking about because God said you're going to worship in the place that I have placed my name, which was the temple. Now they haven't had a temple for 70 years before they came back and for 17 years they still haven't got a temple. So that means they cannot be sacrificing to God, they cannot be worshiping, they cannot do all the stuff that they're supposed to do. What they did I don't know because I don't (laughs) recall what they did during that period of time. But there's no temple, no Ark of the Covenant, no mercy seat, no altar to be giving sacrifices to at the right place. So this is a big deal. They're not able to worship God correctly by the way God told them to worship. And this whole problem is happening. All right, verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and, br- and build the house. And I will take pleasure in that I will and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, says the Lord? Because of my house that is in waste, and you run every man into his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, from dew and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I, and I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground brings forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the, of the hands. So again, he's saying, consider, consider your ways, be thoughtful, determine what's going on. And he says, get up to those mountains, get some wood. (laughs) He's pretty forceful in this uh, message. He goes, you're not going to build God's house. Get up, get up and get some wood and build this house that God will take pleasure in and that he will be glorified in. You know, and this is something even for us as Christians, we hear it all the time by non-Christians and even some Christians alike, well, I can worship God wherever I want. You know, and I agree that you can worship God anywhere. That's not a problem. My question for most people is when they give me that, well, I can worship God up on the mountain. I can worship God out on the lake fishing. I can. My question to them is, are you? Are you truly worshiping God in those places? Or are you maybe saying a prayer or two and saying, okay, I've worshiped God. And I don't even think they're doing that much in most cases. Can you worship God out there? Absolutely. Can you worship God in your home without going to church? Absolutely. The question really comes in, are you? Are you worshiping God without coming into the presence of the body of Christ and participating with the body of Christ in worship. And I know that some people do. Most don't. But you know, even if you are worshiping God, what I have seen over the years is somebody is not attached to a body of Christ. They never grow beyond whatever they can think of. and They're never challenged to go above. Or they're barely challenged. You know, because we as human beings have this idea that well, I'm okay. I don't need anybody else. I don't need to be taught. I don't need to be challenged. This is one of the reasons I listen to as much preaching as I do because I know that I need to be challenged. And these crazy pastors keep talking about the things that I'm having problems with most of the time. You know, I don't know how they keep finding out what I need to be told, but they keep teaching what I need to be told. Now, I know that's tongue-in-cheek, just like me. When, and when I step on people's toes, it's because the Holy Spirit has given me what to say. But I'm amazed how many times these guys who have been recorded <laughs> are saying just what I need to be hearing at the time that I am hearing it. Yes, God is just amazing. And he says, I'm going to be glorified. You need to be coming to the temple to worship the way that I told you is what God is telling them. And this is very true for even, even for us. In the New Testament, they met every single day to be taught the disciples' doctrines. 
Now, we don't meet every day. We meet pretty close to it, but we don't meet every day. We're getting closer at this church. We've got something going on six days a week. But, you know, I'm told by many pastors because they bought into the world's idea that we teach too much. That what? That we teach too much in this church. We have too many meetings. Because the world tells them that you should only meet once or twice a week, and twice is probably too many. And, and when, when I've had somebody tell me that, and I've read it, it's, it's, believe me, it's not just the couple of pastors that have told me, it is in just about every leadership magazine. And I'm going, well, you're giving me a lot of good sociological, psychological reasons. My Bible says they met daily. Uh, when you can give me a biblical reason to not meet frequently, then I might consider it. But to give me what psychologists say and sociologists say, I'm not going to go the way of the world. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. And I'm not going to lean on the world's understanding. And, you know, because they'll go, well, you've got to spend time with your families. Well, you know what, if our families quit spending time playing sports and, and all the clubs and activities they do, you might spend more time with your family outside of, outside of church in the first place. Yes, but most churches split all the families up. You know, you got your kids over here and kids over here and, and adults over here, so they split the families up anyway, which is a problem, which is a problem as well. You know, so we've got all of this going on, and we have to be able to look and say, I need to do things God's way. God says that the early church met every day. Throughout the Old Testament, they met at the tabernacle, they met at the temple often, frequently, you know, almost to the day. David put singers in the temple 24-7 so that if anybody went at any time, there would be worship of God going on in the temple. So they kept the temple open all the time for people to go in and worship. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a large enough church to keep it open 24-7, uh, but, you know, c could we imagine what that would be like, being able to go any time to worship? We are going to keep looking to serve God because this is what he's talking about. He goes, you know, my house, and then he says, look to you, you, you look for much, and lo, come away with little in verse 9, and you brought it home, and he goes, even what you had, I blew on and, and chased it away. God is saying, you keep trying to do things your own way. You're not honoring me. And I am actively working against you while you don't do things my way. You know, what little you are getting, I'm just blowing away and you're not even getting the benefit of that. Uh, why, says the Lord? Because my house is in waste. <laughs> he goes, you have not honored me and you run to your own houses and he goes, I'm not going to bless you when you're doing things your way. You know, next Wednesday we'll be talking about when, when Assyria sent people into God's land of, Israel, of northern Israel. They didn't worship him and he sent in lions to attack them. You know, even though they weren't his children, they were in his land. And he said, you're still gonna, I still expect you to worship me. And he says to his own people, he goes, you're not worshiping me. I'm just going to make life even more difficult for you. You're going to come home with a little and I'm going to make it go away. It's not going to seem to go anywhere. And this is a very important thing. And then in verse 10 he says, therefore the heaven is stayed from dew and the earth is stayed from her fruit. This means that there was droughts going on. Famine. Difficulty. They're, they're not getting what they needed from the world. And he says, though I send a drought or dryness or parchment upon the land and upon the mountains, upon the corn, and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground brings forth, and upon men and cattle and all the labor of your hands. Dryness. So he's not just, all, he's talking about literal dryness, but he's also talking when he talks about on the man and, every, and on the fruit of their labor, Literally, that dryness, that emptiness, that you never feel that things are going right. This is something that many Christians go through when they forget to be, pay attention to God. They get dry. 
They quit reading the Word of God. They quit coming to church. And, and they're going, I just don't get anything out of it right now. Part of that, God is saying, are you still going to stay faithful? And it doesn't last long if we stay faithful. And that's happened. You've had spells when it's like, okay, God, I just, all right, I, you want me to read. Okay, I'm going to read. And you get done reading, and it's like, oh, I didn't get very much out of this. God, what's going on? Most of it is that we're not in the right attitude. We're not praying. We're not seeking him. And it's mostly our fault. But God allows those times in our life to say, are you still going to stay faithful? It is a work to be faithful with God. And it really is. Now, it's all him, but there are those times when it is just hard to stay faithful. Everything seems to be going wrong. I don't feel God's presence and God saying, are you going to believe what I said? Those are those times when I don't feel saved. I don't feel close to God. And God is saying, here's your word. I am, I am nigh unto you. I am near you. I am your strength. Are you content? And this is, those are the hard times. And it really is hard sometimes to stay faithful to God. When your whole family seems to be going the wrong direction, going the opposite direction you are, and God's going. When, when the church doesn't seem to be as strong as you want it to be, when, the, when your Sunday school class is, when this, whatever it is that you're doing for God doesn't seem to be growing. And this is something that can be very difficult. You know, I, I sometimes read these magazines from the, from the association. They talk about these new churches that have gone from zero to three or four hundred. I'm going, God, what, what's going on out here? We, go, we still only have 20 to 25 people. Now, I know that everybody here is growing as well, so I don't know if there are 300 people who are all growing. But I, you know, I know that God has got me here in this, for all practical purposes, a successful church. It's not a big church, but it's successful. I'm watching a large percentage of our people grow and change and become more Christ-like. But it is hard sometimes when you look at this and say, wow, you know, God, what, you know, look at all these others. We get in trouble when we do that. Always. It doesn't matter where we are with God. We get in trouble when we look at others. God, why haven't I grown as much as that person? Why does, you know... And I've sometimes wondered, you know, I've, I've seen people that are just changed dramatically overnight when they're saved and everything changes about them. And I have had this change really slow. Maybe it's because I'm so stubborn, I don't know. God's had to beat me over the head with a two-by-four lot, lots of times. Uh, but why, and you look at these people and say, wow, God, why? And you know what? God never answers that question. He says, I'm in charge of their life. I'm in charge of your life. You get what you're going to get what I give you. And you know, this is very important for us. Are we being faithful to what God has called us to do? And not what God has called somebody else to do. And that is the hard thing sometimes when you get together and say, you know, especially for pastors. You know, pastors get together and they like to talk about how big their church is and how big, you know. You know, my statement is just simple. My people are growing in Christ and they're growing. And that is the wonderful thing. Now, the good news, and they all tell me, well, well go, how big's your town? I go, well, we only have 300 people here. They go, well, you got almost, you got close to 10% of the population of your town. That's pretty good. I go, yeah, but I'm greedy. I want all of them. You know, I want the whole town. I don't want just 10% of the town. You know, but I understand what they're saying. You know, some of these churches in Phoenix and everything, if they had 10% of the town in their, in their church, they'd be overwhelmed. <laughs> Uh, you know, they're, most of them haven't even got 1% of the town. So we look at this and say, God, what is it that you've got for us? Where is it that you want us to go? And we need to be obedient. Otherwise, God will bring dryness into our life. If we're not being obedient, he will do what it takes to get our attention. And sometimes that means shaking us by the collar, hitting us over the head with a two-by-four, sending drought into our into our lives, whatever it is that's going to get our attention and say, pay attention. Start doing what I have asked you to do. And then learn to listen to God. 
that is probably the hardest thing to do is learn to listen to God and to step out in faith. And the reason it's so hard is because we have to walk by faith, not by sight, which means if I was walking by sight and I can do it, it's easy to step out and do it. Walking by faith is, God, I can't do that. And he goes, of course you can't. That's why it's faith. And he tells us to step out. The first time we step out and witness to somebody, the first time we step out and teach a class, the first time we step out and do whatever it is that God's asked us to do and say, God, I just don't know that I can do this. And you step out and the spirit guides and leads and takes over and you start finding the fulfillment in stepping out. I remember very clearly my first sermon. I was only 14 at the time and I, you know, and I practiced my sermon. I practiced it all week. I had a 20 minute sermon. I got done in about eight minutes. Yeah, and I did. It was the first time I'd stood up in front of a large crowd. I'd been in front of the Sunday school class several times, but that was one, one different thing. But to step in front of the, the adults, you know, uh, my message was over so fast it hadn't even begun. Uh, you know, uh, church got out very early that day. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, it was still stepping out. Over the years, God has changed that. And now, I'm, like most pastors, don't give me the opportunity to speak unless you want to have somebody speak for a while. Uh, you know, you never give a, a mic, microphone or the floor to a pastor. You might not get it back. Uh, so, because we're used to speaking, we're used to teaching. And so he's saying, step out, obey, do what it is that you were told to do. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work in the house of the Lord their God in the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. All right. He spoke to them and the people listened. Pretty amazing when you're talking about the Israelite people. They don't usually automatically respond like that. But they are going to respond. And it's only taken them 23 days to get started on the work. That should have been done a little earlier than that. But God stirred them up. How many times did he have to give this message out to them before they heard and understood and responded? Don't know. Took them 23 days, probably every day of that 23 days. That uh, they finally got out and did what God said. And it stirred them up. They anxiously, quickly got around to doing the work once it started. And it took the leaders getting convicted. It took the leaders taking, taking the steps. But it says the people feared before the Lord. They finally started understanding all these things that are making us dry. All these things that are coming in here is because we are not obeying God. And they started understanding that they were losing blessings because of disobedience. And sometimes we need people to come into our life and point out you know, that you may be losing blessings because you're disobedient. Now, you know, having said that, that's a tough thing because what did Job's friends do to him? They accused him of being disobedient. They got ahead of God. Now these guys are disobedient and things are happening to them. And this is why it's very difficult at times to know when to say things to people about turning to God and when not to. And this is part of learning to listen to God. Job's friends were not listening to God. They were taking their doctrine and saying, well, obviously you must have been really bad because you fell from the top all the way down to the bottom. You were the richest man in the, in the entire world, and now you have nothing. You must be an awful, terrible person, Job. 
these guys had the same message. Except in this case, it's the right message. You don't have things because of your disobedience to God. And I'm going to say most of the time when we lose things, it is because we're disobedient. But it's not always because we're disobedient. Sometimes it's just God saying, are you going to stay faithful to me when everything's being stripped away? How do we know the difference? We go before God and fall flat on our face, confess anything that we do know about, and say, God, I've confessed it, now I'm going to just wait. Is this a dry spot that you're taking me through that I'm going to just have to learn to endure and take Job's though he, though he slay me? <laughs> I'm going to trust him. Now, take the good with the bad from God because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The drought falls on the just and the unjust. So there are times when we're going through hard times that are God saying, are you just going to trust me? And then there's times when we go through hard times and you know what? We as an individual usually know the difference. Have I been honoring God and I'm going through a rough try, dry spot? Have I been honoring God and following him and serving him and giving him my time and giving him my offerings and giving him all this and I'm going through a hard dry spot and I can't identify any, any real big sin in my life that causes it and I'm just being tested to be learning to endure. And that's what you say, what, I'm, God, what are you trying to teach me? And I've told you all, when you're going through a hard time, your first thing is to look and say, God, is there something that I have done that I'm being disciplined for? And that's an easy thing. And don't get too in introspective, you know, well, you know, maybe it was this, the, you know, and go way down the list, you know. It's, it's, if you are being punished, you know what you're being punished for. You know, God is very good at telling you what you are being punished for if you're being punished. But if you're, if you're going through a hard time and you look and you know, you know, God, you know, I haven't been, you know, doing this or doing this and I've been doing this or doing that and go, okay, I'm, I'm getting what I deserve for it. God, I confess, I turn, now I'm going to endure the, the punishment and endure, endure it because I deserve it. If you go down, and none of us are perfect, so don't get too deep in your introspective because if God treated us with what we deserve, we'd never have anything. But if you're not having a, a sin in your life that you can just say, okay, God, I really know what's going on, it may just be a test in saying, are you going to continue to serve me even when it looks like I've walked away from you? And those are the hard times. When we're going through a test, God knows how to do a test. When I test people out at the, out at the prison and they ask for answers, I'm going, this isn't my test, it's your test. I cannot be the one giving you the answers. When we are in a test with God, he stands back and says, do you truly believe what I have been teaching you? Are you going to live by what I've taught you? And he just steps back. He's still there. He's still with us. But he's saying, you're in the middle of a test. Do have you learned the lesson? And this is why I grab on to Romans 8, 28. I'm going, okay, God, you've got a reason. I'm going to just hold on to it. You know, and again, all of these things will come down to saying, do I believe what God has been teaching me? Here he's saying, I am with you. Even though you're going through all this dryness, even though you're losing everything, I am here with you. When we go through trials, whether we deserve them or whether they're just a test, God is with us. He has not abandoned us. We may feel like he's abandoning us. We may not even hear his voice for a period of time during the test. But God is still with us. He never leaves us. And this is why it's so important that we keep focus on what he says. The truth of the word of God he tells us that when we are saved, we have eternal life. And many times, we don't feel like we have life at all, much less eternal life. And we're thinking, God, you gave me eternal life. Where is the joy of my salvation? Where is all of this, all of the, all these promises? And God says, do you believe my word? 
even though it doesn't feel like what you want to have, do you trust me? And too much of Christianity is about feelings. Well, God, I feel like you're with me on that. I'm ready to take on the world, God, because I feel your presence. You know, and then one morning I wake up and I don't feel his presence and it's hard to get up out of bed. It's hard to pray. It's hard to read the Bible. It's hard to go about business. And you're going, God, where are you? If I truly believe the word of God, he's still right there with me, even though I don't feel his presence. And that was Job's answers to his, to his friends. Because I don't understand why God's doing all of this, but I trust him. In spite of all of his complaints, because they kept attacking him, and you know, he still had complaints, but he still ultimately said, I still trust God. Now toward the end, he got a little perturbed. Uh, but when he keeps getting attacked by four different people saying, you're bad, 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 and doesn't tell us how long this happened, we don't know if each one of those speeches were, took one day, so it's several days. We don't know if they got through those in, in a very short period of time. But he's being hammered over and over about how bad he is. It's no wonder that eventually he gets a little irritated. Yeah. Well, Job's problem was he believed in the prosperity gospel that that his friends were spitting back at him because there's one one school of thought that believed they that those were his disciples rebuking their teacher for not believing what they for what he had taught them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which you know, you you every you know, and he comes back and goes, "What lousy encouragers you are." Yeah. You know. And that is our job as, as the body of Christ is to encourage one another. When somebody is down, we don't beat them, beat them over the rock and bury them. We encourage them and lift them back up. Even if they deserve what they got, we still know that God's grace loves them. And we give them the grace that, to be able to stand back up on their feet. And that is the beauty of the body of Christ when it operates the way it's supposed to. Now, I know that many times churches do not operate as the body of Christ and they beat up on each other. It's been said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. <laughs> and unfortunately, that happens so often in churches. Somebody falls and people just pile on them instead of being Jesus Christ to them and lifting them up and encouraging them and helping them back up. For the most part, I see our church being generally caring for one another and lifting one another up. And that's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the body of Christ in action. The true church. And you know, the true church is the one that comes together to actually minister to one another. The, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people who think the same way, that to act the same way and believe in God's word. That treat one another, that are one in Christ. Not everybody that's in, that comes to a church is part of the church. Not everybody that's on the role of a church is part of the church. There are lots of uh, wolves in sheep clothing. There are a lot of tares out there that look like Christians, act like Christians, and may even act more like Christians than the Christians. But they're not part of the body of Christ. Some churches have more of them than, than others. Some that teach the Bible pretty thoroughly have less. But there is not a church out there that doesn't have wolves and tares in it that are looking to tear people up. And if people are looking for a reason not to come to church, you know who they're going to find in that church are the wolves and the tares that tear them down and make them feel bad. Easily. It happens all the time. You, know, you could be going to the best church in the world and there's going to be some bad people and people are going to meet those people and go, well, that was a terrible church. All I met is people criticizing me. Well, why didn't you go talk to the people who are actually that church, not the ones that, are, that Satan put in front of you to, to encourage you to not come? We need to be able to come. God says, I am with you. And he stirred their spirit to get to work. And then it said that in that 24th day of the sixth month, they got to work. <laughs> they, this is pretty fast obedience. They're listening. They're, they are listening. Haggai has reason to rejoice 
He spoke and they listened. He wasn't poor Jeremiah who spoke and nobody ever listened. Well, Jonah had an audience that obeyed, even though he didn't obey very much. Uh, he wasn't happy about their obedience. Uh, but so he's got people that are obeying his message. Took him 23 days to get obedient. Uh, but, but they did get busy doing the work of God. And it is under his time that they are going to step up and build the temple. And this is why he's oftentimes called the, the temple prophet. <laughs> okay, uh, They refer to him as the temple because he, pro he prophesies and the people finally get busy building the temple. And, you know, because he is mentioned in the book of Ezra as well, you know, several times in the book of Ezra. Uh, so we're going to end here. His first message that is recorded is, a, is worked. And as again, I said, 23 days, I think he gave this message more than once uh, to him. I'm sure that it wasn't just one. I'm sure it just wasn't one time that he preached this message. Uh, because the one thing I know about God is, you know, he told us all through the scriptures. He repeats himself a hundred times, it seems like. Uh, every time I've taught, I've had to teach it several times before people finally get it. You know, and you know, I, 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 I got it. I understand. I heard. And I really do believe it's probably the first time they ever heard. You know, it hit their brain cells a couple of times, hit the eardrums. <laughs> but, you know, but it does come down to how many times do we have to hear something? And it's pretty true that we all have to hear something multiple times. Very few people hear something and remember it the first time they ever hear it. And even if they do remember it, they don't always understand it the first time they hear it. And I shared with you some of the verses I learned when I was a teenager or just now over the last 10, 10 20 years actually starting to mean anything. And it's like, wow, yes, I hid your word in my heart, God. Didn't mean anything. I hid your word, but wow, this verse is powerful. And this is something that we're going to learn. The more we know about God, the more these things start to mean the more we start to understand it. And then when we think we understand it, we get to understand it deeper later on, and then we get to understand it deeper later on. These people are finally taking heart to the message that all of your problems are happening because you aren't honoring God. You haven't built his temple. You have not placed him first in your life. You have built your houses, your fields, all in your work, and all these other things before God you have been empty if you will just do what you were told to do and honor God. All the rest comes. And after 23 days of this message, they finally, wow, he's, he's right. Now, they might have, other teachers might have been teaching other things and, you know, at the same time because all through the Bible, it's the same story. Honor God. Honor God with the first fruits of your increase and all these things shall be added unto you. Cast your bread upon the waters and it shall return unto you. All these different things that God says, take me and put me first and then you will receive all the rest. When Paul said, I've learned to be content. Why? Because he put God in his kingdom first. And says, God, you are first. Now I am content. Because you are all that I need. And we really do, if we get to the place where we start to fully understand that God is all that we need, then we are content with whatever he gives. And if we really learn to be content in him, it's amazing all the stuff God gives us. <laughs> you know, our contentment is in him and we barely get by and then all of a sudden he says, okay, you've learned to be content in me. Now let me bless you. And as long as we stay contented in him, when he starts blessing, we'll see more blessings. Job got everything back, twice a back. Face a time where he had to just learn to trust God and that God was all, was all in all. We see this all the time. Abraham and Sarah had to learn to trust in God. He's supposed to have a nation come out of him. He hasn't even got one kid. He's pushing, he's pushing, he's pushing 100, you know, and he still hasn't got his kid. And he's supposed to have an entire nation. 
And yet he trusts God enough to say, all right, God, you said it, I believe it. All through the scriptures we see people getting blessings, losing blessings, getting blessings, losing blessings, and saying, are you content? We see Daniel being blessed by Nebuchadnezzar by the time Belshazzar runs around to Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He's been put off to the side and no longer on the royal court. Still appears to be somewhere in the royal city, but he's a nobody for all practical purposes. Then he gets raised up again. Then he gets under Cyrus and he gets raised up again. God will keep doing it if we just stay faithful to him. And it is hard to stay faithful sometimes. And God is saying, step out. Step out and do what I have told you to do. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to bless each person that hears this. Lord, teach us to be faithful to you, even in the dry, hard times, that we will continue to follow after your will. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.